0: You are now listening to a Providence Community Church podcast. For more information, please visit ProvidenceTX.org.
1: We're going to continue in a sermon series that we started at the beginning of the year called King and Crown. Um, It is a series through the book of Mark. And we are talking, of course, since we're in a gospel about the life of Jesus, but also about how our uh, culture tries to find its identity outside of Christ. So um, this morning, we are going to continue in Mark chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, we're going to ask that you turn there with us. Um, If you don't have your Bibles with you this morning, but you'd rather be in a hard copy of the text, we do have Bibles under some of the seats. You can grab that one. And if you don't own a copy of the scriptures at home, feel free to take that one home as a gift from us. We'd love for you to have access to the scriptures at your own house. So Again, we're going to be in Mark chapter 3 this morning, so when you get there, if you are able, would you please stand with me, and we're going to read verses 1 through 6 together. Again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, come here. And he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm? to save life or to kill. But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You guys may be seated.
0: Good morning, everyone. Good morning. I want to welcome you here to Providence. My name is Court and I'm one of the pastors here at the church. If it's your first time, thanks so much for making us a part of your week. We're glad you're here. We really hope you enjoy yourself. Like Lauren said, we are continuing our work through the book of Mark and we're in chapter number three, hoping to get through around six verses, but we're going to do some Old Testament work today. And so we're not just going to be in those six verses. So I'd love to just pray for us and jump right in. If you'll bow your heads, I'll ask the Lord that he might speak to us through his word. Father, we're so grateful that we have the wonderful privilege to be able to gather together, to sing, to celebrate, to honor you with our, with our lips and prayerfully that our hearts are near as well, to submit ourselves to your word, to celebrate at your table, to pray with each other, encourage one another. God, what a grace it is that you've given us. We ask now, my God, that you would help us. Holy Spirit, open our ears to hear, our eyes to see, our hearts to be fertile ground, that your word might be a seed that's sown. We ask, God, that you would illuminate the scriptures to us, not that in them we find life, but that they lead us to you. And we find life in you, Jesus. And so we just ask that you would meet our needs, both corporately and personally, the ones that you alone know, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So there's a lot of New Testament stories uh, that are woven throughout uh, the scriptures, and particularly the Gospels, but also in the epistles, that will have easy correlations to Old Testament texts. Um, you know, if you read the book of Hebrews, for instance, you can obviously see that uh, there's going to be a lot of Old Testament allusions in the book of Hebrews. They talk a lot about priests and uh, a lot about the offices of the Old Testament, and then characters in the Old Testament come up. Chapter 11 alone has multiple characters. And then there's other texts in the New Testament that have those same callbacks to the Old Testament, but they're not as on the surface. They're not as obvious. Um, and this morning's text is one of those. And so we're going to spend a little bit of time in the book of 1 Kings. Now, the reason that we want to do it, obviously, is because the understanding the Old Testament context kind of sets the stage for us. It gives us more understanding. It illuminates for us what Jesus may be doing here or what the writers of the New Testament may be doing in other instances But it's important to go back into the Old Testament when we see these allusions also because for Christians, it's important that we remember the Bible is one book and one story. It consists of 66 books. It consists of multiple authors that wrote those 66 books. It consists of two different testaments, old and new, 37 books in one and 29 in the other. It consists uh, of all of those different accounts. For instance, we have four different accounts of Jesus's life and ministry. And yet the Christian doesn't believe that the Bible is a series of books with various accounts about God. The Christian believes that the Bible's one book that tells God's redemptive story of his people and of his grace to those people. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we open up the New Testament and we see that it's paralleled with the old because we think these threads are weaving a tapestry of God's character, his grace, who he is and who he's always been. And it's important for Christians to remember this so that when we read the New Testament, we know that this is not something altogether different, even if it's something altogether new. That if Jesus says he comes to bring a new covenant, it doesn't mean that it's totally unrelated to what he's already been doing. We know this because the Bible says two things, that both God is unchangeable and that Jesus Christ being the son of God and, or God the son is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So we want to make these threads, we want to see what's going on so that we can understand more deeply what Jesus is trying to do. And so that leads us this morning to 1 Kings, if you have your Bible, 1 Kings chapter number 11, and we're going to be in verse 26. It should be up behind me too, but if you want to turn there, you can. 1 Kings chapter 11, verse number 26. Now the reason that we're turning here is because there's a in, uh, there's an innocuous detail in Mark chapter three in the first six verses. One that happens oftentimes in the gospels, and we often pass it right over because we think, well, it, perhaps it's just adding more detail for the story's sake. And that detail is that not only was there a man who was sick that Jesus healed in the synagogue, but it, the the writer Mark, through perhaps the words of Peter, tells us particularly what kind of sickness he had that he was a man with a withered hand which is not something that we typically see especially not today we don't consider most of us get colds. some of you have colds right now I'm not going to out you because we're in a weird time right now about sickness but you know we don't typically see a withered hand as something that's as common and the bible has a story about a, a man's hand that was withered and it's in the old testament and it's something that we wouldn't even think about if we weren't trying to make these connections and wonder why God might be giving us those details. That man's name was Jeroboam, also not a character that we often talk about. It's not one that's mentioned by name in the New Testament. And yet, in the Old Testament, if you read the Bible in the book of First and Second Kings, Jeroboam is a prominent character. So much so that God regularly states that all of the kings of Israel who were evil, they walked in the ways of their father Jeroboam. You might think, well, there's a lot of evil kings. Why did this guy get a bad rap? Well, he is at the very beginning, at the starting line of the division of the kingdom of Israel. And we're going to pick up his story where God himself is the one who lays the seeds for Jeroboam to take power. He doesn't start as an evil king, but he quickly turns, as is the story of many. And so we're going to pick this up. This is during the reign of Solomon where we first see Jeroboam in the scripture. So 1 Kings chapter 11, let's start in verse 26. Jeroboam, the son of Nebat an Ephraimite of Zerah, a servant of Solomon, whose mother's name was Zerah, a widow, also lifted up his hand against the king. And this was the reason why he lifted up his hand against the king. Solomon built the millow and closed up the breach of the city of David, his father. The man Jeroboam was very able, and when Solomon saw that the young man was industrious, he gave him charge over all the forced labor of the house of Joseph. And at that time, when Jeroboam went out of Jerusalem, the prophet Ahijah the Shehanite found him on the road. And now Ahijah was dressed himself in a new garment, and the two of them were alone in the open country. And Ahijah laid hold of the new garment that was on him, and he tore it to twelve pieces. And he said to Jeroboam, take for yourself ten pieces, for thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am about to tear the kingdom from the hand of Solomon and give you ten tribes. But he shall have one tribe for the sake of servant." my servant David, and for the sake of Jerusalem, the city that I've chosen out of all the tribes of Israel. Because they forsaken me and worshiped Ashtaroth, the goddess of the Sidonians, Kamash, the god of Moab, and Milcom, the god of the Ammonites, and they have not walked in my ways, doing what is right in in my sight and keeping my statutes and my rules as David his father did. Nevertheless, I will not take the whole kingdom out of his hand, but I'll make him a ruler all the days of his life. For the sake of David, my servant, whom I've chosen. Who kept my commandments and my statutes? But I will take the kingdom out of his son's hand, and I'll give it to you, ten tribes. Yet to his son I will give one tribe, that David my servant may always have a lamp before me in Jerusalem, the city where I have chosen to put my name. And I'll take you, and you shall reign over all that your soul desires, and you shall be king over Israel. If you'll listen to all that I command you, and walk in my ways, and do what's right in my eyes, keeping my statutes and my commandments as David my servant did, I'll be with you, and I'll build you a sure house as I built for David, and I will give Israel to you. And I will afflict the offspring of David because of this, but not forever. Solomon sought, therefore, to kill Jeroboam, but Jeroboam arose and fled to Egypt, to Shishak, king of Egypt, and was in Egypt until the death of Solomon. So what do we see here in the starting line? You know, I told you what the book of First and Second Kings says over and over about Jeroboam, and it's not very flattering. And yet, the starting line for Jeroboam and his kingship is actually good. The Bible wants us to know that Jeroboam was raised up as an adversary to King Solomon by God himself. This was God's judgment on Solomon for the idolatry that he had brought in that permeated the kingdom of Israel through taking his wives and building idols, temples for them. Now, this was the beginning of Israel's downfall. From this moment, you can pretty much map Israel's history all the way into exile. And yet the seeds of division that are sown here, God is the one who's architecting as judgment. This is a judgment on Israel for their idolatry. The Bible specifically records that Jeroboam raised his hand against the king right off the bat. But then it is, it is clear that the Bible then jumps immediately to tell us that he did so according to the word of the Lord through a prophet. So what happens next to Jeroboam, and how does he end up getting such a bad rap? Well, let's turn, if you turn in your Bible, to chapter 12, verses 25 through 33, you'll see. Before I begin reading, Solomon does not lose the kingdom. Instead, his son, as the prophet said, Rehoboam loses the kingdom. And Rehoboam, the king of Solomon, takes over, and he begins to reign, and the Bible records that he takes counsel with two different boards. One are the elders of Israel, the men who have lived longer and served with his father. And the other are the young men who were his friends and who had not served with any other king, but had basically been more of his peers. And he asks them, as I, as I speak to the people, should I speak to them gently and tell them that even though my father was a harsh taskmaster, my father forced them to build and build and build. They built the palace, he built the temple, he built the infrastructure, he built the temples for his wives, he built himself many houses. Solomon was a man that forced a lot of labor. And the people were tired, they were weary, and Rehoboam asked the elders, one counsel, should I come gently or should I come tough? And the older men said, you should be gentle, you should be wise, you should consider that in this season, the people need, what they need is respite, and you should tell them that you're gonna give them that respite. And then he turned over to his buddies, to his friends, you know, and they said, those old men are silly. You need to triple down. Tell them that you, that your father, may have been tough, but you'll show them what tough really means. Tell them that you think Solomon was bad. Wait until I crack the whip. And so, of course, the Bible records that Rehoboam goes with the young men's advice, which as a side note, not related to my sermon, is not wise. And so because of it, 10 of the king, 10 of the tribes of Israel rebel against that king and say, we have no part with David's house. And we pick up the story where Jeroboam has become king over the 10 tribes of the kingdom of Israel. And Rehoboam only holds two tribes, Judah and Benjamin. And this is how the Bible records the next set of stories. Verse 25, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there. And he went out from there and he built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will turn back to the house of David. If this people goes up to offer sacrifices in the temple of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will turn again to their Lord, to Rehoboam, king of Judah, and they will kill me and they'll return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. So the king, the king took counsel and he made two calves of gold and he said to the people, you have gone up to Jerusalem long enough. Behold, your gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt." He set one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. And then this thing became a sin for the people went as far as Dan to be before one. He also made temples on high places, appointed priests from all the people who were not of the Levites. And Jeroboam appointed a feast on the 15th day of the eighth month that was like the feast that was in Judah. And he offered sacrifices there on the altar. And so he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves that he made. He placed in Bethel the priests of the high places that he had made. And he went up to the altar that he had made in Bethel on the 15th day in the eighth month, in the month that he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the people of Israel and went up to the altar to make offerings. So Jeroboam's fall is seen here. It's quick, it is swift, and yet it's deadly. Out of fear that the other 10 tribes will be drawn back to Judah and King Rehoboam when they go up to Jerusalem yearly for sacrifice, he makes an idolatrous error. He builds two golden calves. Now, for us who have been in Exodus for the last year, you should be like, hmm. And what does he do? He says, behold, your gods who brought you out of the land of Egypt, the exact words of Aaron. And then he breaks the law by installing his own priesthood and his own feast days and his own high holy days, his own altars. He goes through the entire law and makes his own. And the Bible is keen to record that he does this based on whatever he devises in his own heart. So the three themes of Jeroboam's sin are this. First, his heart clings to power. And it's important to note that this is a power that God alone had given him, and yet he clings to it. Number two, he creates his own law to maintain that power, and it's even ceremonial law. And then number three, he puts a stumbling block before all of Israel to worship idols. And We should key in on that because idolatry is always the result of man's desire for power apart from God. So how does it end? Now here's the withered hand part. First Kings chapter 13. If you go there, let's read the first five verses. And behold, a man of God came out of Judah by the word of the Lord to Bethel. And Jeroboam was standing by the altar to make offerings. He's making offerings on his false altar. And the man cried out against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord. Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And he shall sacrifice on you the priests of the high places who make offerings on you and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave them a sign this day, saying, This is the sign that the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be torn down, and the ashes that are on it shall be poured out. And when the king heard the saying of the man of God, which he cried out against the altar at Bethel, Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar and said, Seize him. And his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up so that he could not draw back to himself. The altar also was torn down and the ashes poured out from the altar according to the sign that the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. So the end of this chapter in the story is that a prophet comes out of Judah and prophesies against Jeroboam. He says, a son is going to be born, a son of Judah. And when this boy is born, he will tear down your altars. He will destroy your priests. He will cleanse Israel. Of course, Josiah was this king, and this was actually fulfilled in the old covenant. But Jeroboam cries out against the prophet, and he reaches his hand out. And as he reaches his hand out, he says, seize him. He wants to kill the prophet. And as he does so, his hand dries up and is withered. The hand that God had raised up against Solomon now is turned against him in idolatry. And when that hand is raised up against God, what happens is that it's withered and it's powerless. That's the storyline here. So if that's the context for Mark 3, let's go back and let's look a little bit at this story. Jesus walks into the synagogue again. This is what Jesus does. It's a place of worship and he shows up. But the Bible's keen to record that a man attends... And not just a sick man, but a man with a withered hand. So your ears should perk. Why? Then Mark goes on to tell us that the Pharisees are watching. And the Pharisees are these nefarious characters that seem to always want to harm Jesus. And they're watching Jesus to see if they can accuse him for working on the Sabbath. Which we've talked a lot about the Pharisees. We'll talk a little bit more today. But they're pretty grotesque already off the bat. They are hoping to accuse Jesus of working by healing He's going to heal this man, and they're going to say, see, he's a lawbreaker. So Jesus looks at them, and he knows their hearts, and he asks them, is it lawful to do evil or to do good on the Sabbath? It's a very wise question, by the way. And, of course, they refuse to answer. They refuse to answer because either of these answers will not suffice to meet their desires. If they say it's lawful to do good on the Sabbath, then when Jesus heals this man, they must be forced to praise him, which they are uninterested in doing. If they say it's only lawful to do evil on the Sabbath, the people will immediately reject them because the Sabbath is a high holy day of God's goodness. And so instead, what do they do? Rather than repent of their hard heartedness, they stay silent. Jesus is angry. He's grieved at their hardness of heart. And so he heals the man. And then verse six records to us that their response is to immediately plot with the Herodians to kill Jesus. Now, the Pharisees and the scribes, as we've noted already through this series, occupied a great position of influence in Israel. And just like Jeroboam or anyone who gets a prominent position, they are met with a choice. They can use their hand of power and influence to honor God and to minister to the people, or they can choose to leverage that power and influence to further entrench their own glory and their own power in perpetuity of course, they choose the latter. The Pharisees we have seen have fallen in love with their own power and their own prestige and their own position. They could not bear the thought of losing it. And so to keep it, they had chosen to redefine the law. That's what we keep seeing. They have these quabbles with Jesus about the law, but it's laws they've redefined. And they've redefined them on their own terms like Jeroboam. And in so doing, they've enslaved the people by putting stumbling blocks in their way. They had become idolaters, not worshippers of God. They've become ministers of the flesh. They had become ministers offering works-based righteousness, man-made traditionalism, and all of it sought to bring more honor and more glory to themselves rather than to God. And in essence, what we see with the Pharisees is men who had traded the two tablets of stone written by the finger of God for two golden calves worked with their own fingers glittering for their own glory. I don't say this of my own authority. I'm not being hard on the Pharisees based on my own historical readings only. I want to read the words of Jesus about the Pharisees in one of his maybe most difficult indictments that we see in all of the Bible. This is Matthew 23. It'll be put up behind me. You don't have to turn there, but Matthew 23. This section of scripture is called Jesus's woes to the scribes and the Pharisees. I'm only going to read some of them. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, The scribes and the Pharisees, they sit on Moses' seat. Well, that's pretty prominent. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but don't do the works they do. For they preach, but they do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens hard to bear and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at the feasts and the best seats in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you're all brothers. And call no man father on the earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. You neither yourselves go in, nor do you allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, for you travel across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice fold the child of hell as yourselves." Well, that's tough words, okay? So if you ever think I'm being tough on these guys, Jesus was way tougher, all right? Now that the true king has arrived into the world, his very presence and his very ministry confronts their hypocrisy. When Jesus walks in, they can't help but be outed. He doesn't have to say anything. But here's the key. How do they respond? Will they respond in humility? Will they respond in repentance? Will they admit their own folly? Will they admit how they failed, how they've longed for their own power to stay entrenched? No, of course not. They align themselves with the Herodians, the very men who supported the king who was responsible for the murder of thousands of children in hopes that he might just get Jesus when he was born. The men who were supportive of Herod, the very man who was responsible for the murder of John the Baptist, beheading him and putting it on a platter just a few verses ago. That's who the Pharisees align themselves with. Now, I don't want you to miss the parallels here because what we see in 1 Kings is that a, a king from the tribe of Judah is going to be rejected, Josiah. And here we see a real king, Jesus from Judah, who's being rejected. The Pharisees choose King Herod over him and in so doing, they throw their lot in with Jeroboam. They plot to kill Jesus. And in short, they stretch their hand out against God. They raise up their hand, that very hand that God had given. But the truth is, Jesus knew this. The Pharisees knew this. But they didn't want the people to know it. And that was that their hand had long been withered of true power. Their true spiritual powerlessness was exposed by Jesus. They hated him because he was everything that they were not. They could not heal the man who showed up to synagogue, but Jesus could, and they hated him for it. They hated him because without a word, he showed others their weakness, their powerlessness, their hypocrisy. Jesus healed the man with the withered hand, showing to all that his hand is not withered, but he extends his power and righteousness and truth and mercy and good. You see, the Bible records that the hand is a symbol. It's a metaphor It's a metaphor for God's power, God's strength. When God lifts his hand against a nation in judgment, that nation will be judged. When God raises his hand for his people to be saved, those people will be saved. Or as the children of Israel wrote in many of their songs, with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, God saved us from the land of Egypt from the house of bondage. And here we see that Jesus' hand is strengthened in the Pharisees' are found wanting and yet jesus is grieved at their hardness of heart he's angry and you might think why is jesus angry does he hate the pharisees no jesus loves the pharisees he's angry and grieved because they cannot see that he is offering to heal their withered hand They cannot see that he's offering to do good to them but they can only see him as an enemy they cannot see that if they would but ask, he would heal them. He would give them true strength. He would give them true influence. But instead, they conspire with Herod's men. Now, what do we do with this passage? Because it's easy to look at this and say, man, those Pharisees, they're terrible. Let's go watch the Super Bowl. <laughs> well, the Bible, you know. The Bible's true, and because it's true, it's true in every facet, it's true in every context, and we can, we can pull out much from this text. It's a warning against real religiosity, yes. It's a warning against hard-heartedness, yes. It's an invitation to come and be healed and restored, yes. But I think for us, where we stand today, more than anything, it is a prophetic word to return to God, and It's my contention that we are in so desperate need of a prophetic word in our time that calls God's people back to him. Our culture talks a lot about privilege. We develop our cultural ideologies with a window to the past that only extends so far. And so because it only extends so far, we become historically ignorant, biblically ignorant. And because we've abandoned the biblical version of what The history of humanity truly is. We're like men grappling in the dark, swinging away at each other, hoping that we're going to fix our broken lives, our broken communities, our broken nation through more abuse. But the Christian, of all people, should not embrace cultural ideologies because we believe the Bible alone is the standard for life and truth. And the Bible tells us with no uncertain words that the greatest privilege in the world is not ethnic privilege, it's not class privilege, it's not political privilege, it's not social privilege. The scripture tells us the greatest privilege in the history of the world is a spiritual one given by God. And that spiritual privilege, the Bible tells us, is that God, through the cost of his own son, was willing to call us sons and daughters and adopt us. This is the highest privilege that one could ever imagine. That's what the Bible says. The Anglican theologian J.I. Packer said this, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper and given the family name. To be right with God, the judge, is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is far greater. Sadly, the church's largely fallen prey to the sin of the Pharisees. We have despised the greatest privilege that God has ever given to mankind, and he gave it by the blood of his own son. We've followed the footsteps of Jeroboam, and we've sought to use earthly means to tackle spiritual problems, spiritual issues. And in so doing, the church's hand has been withered. If we just rewind the clock and consider the history, of the church in the United States alone. How great was the gift of influence and strength and prominence that God had given the church in generations past? If you were to just drive through most American cities, you would find that if in most, maybe even all of them, there's a church, a beautiful cathedral at the center of each town. They are now filled with art museums, They're now filled with coffee shops or just completely open, used as museums for a time that once was. But there was a time that they were architecturally constructed at the center of the town because it communicated the power and prominence that the church held. There was a time not too long ago when pastors were considered prominent men in the culture. Men like Billy Graham were given seats at the table among world leaders To advise according to the principles of God's word, men like Martin Luther King led a reckoning on the issue of race from the Bible, as it were. What did we do with such a gift? Out of fear that people's hearts would stray after the culture, we capitulated and we built our own idols within the church itself. We made makeshift golden calves, adopting the cheap imitations of worldly idols. We rejected the words of the apostle, James, who told us that friendship with the world is enmity with God. And we chose to imitate the world to stay relevant, that we might retain some dregs, some semblance of prominence in the culture. If we could just potentially have that one article in the New York Times that everyone sneers and ignores, at least we're writing in it. We adopted cultural ideologies that were never rooted in Scripture, chose to adopt social and racial hierarchies as a way to see the world rather than cling to the gospel that unites all people in worship to one God with the highest privilege of all, as the Apostle Paul says, we are no longer Jew nor Greek, barbarian or Scythian, slave nor free, but children of the Most High God, and Christ is all in all. We adopted cultural habits in parenting, in our lifestyles, in our finances, in our relationships. We adopted the idols of our culture, and we celebrated the exact same people. We even called them celebrities. We adopted the world's entertainment as our own, the world's education as our own, and the world's desires as our own. In short, we we adopted the idols of the world, and we did so because we had forgotten our God who adopted us. Now, it's easy to point out the church's ills. It's a little more personal to me because, well, for obvious reasons. But we have to own this personally, after all, because we are the church. If we're honest, we should identify in this text with Jeroboam and with the Pharisees. Who among us has not fallen into the sin of Esau, who despised his birthright so much he was willing to sell it for a bowl of porridge? Now, we may say that's not me, but let me put it another way. Who among us has not been willing to part with our amazing heritage as children of God to simply satisfy our temporary base-level appetite in the moment? Who among us has not used the very hand that God restored and strengthened to fashion our own idols to worship, to bow down to? In so doing, who among us has not raised our own hand against the very God who saved us with his? And because we raised our hand against the God who saved us, our hand has withered. Our power is limited. Our effect on the culture around us is muted. Rarely, if ever, is the church looked to for prophetic wisdom or guidance. Rarely, if ever, is the word of God revered enough to seek the guidance of a pastor. If we get calls to do interviews, it's for hit pieces to prove what clowns we are. Sadly, many of our pastors today, like the Pharisees, have made their peace with the Herodians of our day. They unwittingly or wittingly conspire against their very own people every single day because they find deeper satisfaction in gaining societal approval than they do the approval and honor of God. To preserve what little influence and power they have, Some will sell their own souls to defend the worst kinds of debauchery while they cast a sideways glance at any lowly man who might question if that be biblical. And so it's not a wonder now that most prominent press the church gets are articles, essays, and even famous podcasts about the church's most heinous sins and sexual scandals and abuses. Do you know why that's the press that we get? Because God in his judgment has given us full that which we have desired. And this is a hard word. Like Jesus' words to the Pharisees that we read and we think, go get them. And yet, it's the hard word that produces a softened heart. And still, Jesus' words should ring clear to us this morning. Brothers, sisters, we are in desperate need of a true Revival. A revival that bursts forth from the church in an emphatic cry of repentance. A revival that's born not of the will of man, not of the will of the flesh, but of God's own hand. A revival that's not scheduled and promoted for. The church must refuse to follow the footsteps of Jeroboam and the Pharisees. And instead, we should see ourselves as the man with the withered hand That Christ is offering and speaking to us this morning to heal us. That's the word I want to bring to you this morning. Is Jesus' words from Mark chapter 3. Come here and stretch out your hand. Reach out to Christ. Reach your hand out to him, not against him. Come to Christ because only Christ can truly heal us. Only Christ can restore us. Only Christ can make us well again. Only Christ can raise us up. And the good news is that he stands at the ready because not only was he crucified and buried, but he rose. Nothing less than a personal and corporate return to the Savior can heal what has gone out of joint. But the good news this morning is that Christ is sufficient. Christ is enough. The answer to our societal ills, our personal ills, our familial ills are not worldly ideas that glitter with gold, but a blood-stained cross and an empty tomb. The gospel, after all, is the answer. God, after all, was the answer to Jeroboam's fears, but he had to create his own idols, his own substitutes. But the gospel, after all, is the answer to our own problems, our own ills. Christ crucified and raised is a worthy message, not merely because it's good, but because it's the only good that man's power cannot save. If we go any other way, we go to streams that have no water. Jesus' blood shed for us, his hands nailed for us. This is what we must return to. And so this morning, I bring that word to you from the Lord Jesus. Come here and stretch out your hand. His hands were pierced so that yours could be restored. This is the love that we ought to return to. And worship not merely with our mouths, but with our hearts. Now, I know that this is a tough word this morning, but I bring it for a singular reason, and I said it earlier. It's because only the hammer of God's word at times can break the hardened heart. See, soft words we have seen in our culture, affirming words without the need for affirmation or the deserve of, the, of affirmation, they create hard hearts. <laughs> but hard words, true words, create soft hearts. And oh, what God could do with a generation of soft-hearted people that responded to his word. Let me pray for us. Father, I reach my hand out to you now in repentance. Where I have fallen short, oh my God, would you forgive me? Heal me, restore me, and bring me back to the joy of that salvation. God, for those under the sound of my voice, we pray, Holy Spirit, would you blow the wind of your presence wherever it listeth so that we might feel with hearts of flesh and not hearts of stone and respond. And God, would you bring joy to us in that moment, a joy that does not cover up our frailties, but a joy that truly absolves us of the guilt that they caused. Help us now as we take of your table to not only long for that revival, but to cry out to the only one who can bring it. In Jesus' name, amen.